Good morning to all the UK column viewers. Uh, we've got a very special discussion today uh, where we're going to be talking about a recent event where vaccine safety was discussed in Westminster. Uh, this was quite a critical meeting that it was uh, set up on the basis that uh, people who were suffering adverse effects from vaccines would be able to meet up with MPs and discuss their concerns and experiences and symptoms. And I think that uh, many people hoped that as a result of bringing real people, real evidence, real individuals, real families, together with the MPs, that the result of this event would be that there would be quite an outspoken statement by concerned MPs, and that many people uh, felt that this would then lead to greater attention into vaccine safety by the government. Now, I'm not going to say more because we can hear from people who were present at the event, uh, but our discussion today is going to be around the whole subject of vaccine safety and the effects on many people in UK. So first of all, I'd like to welcome um, as guests, we've got Charlotte Crichton, one of the key, uh, key members, founding members of UKCV family. So Charlotte, welcome to UK Column this morning. And I know that this is going to be uh, quite hard work for you because you don't feel well all of the time but I'm going to say thank you very much for making the effort to join us and speak out. Thank you Brian, thank you for having me. It's, it's a pleasure and uh, we're also delighted to be joined by Dr Christian Buckland. Now we've spoken to him on many occasions, um, he has been giving a lot of support to those people who've been suffering from adverse effects as a result of the vaccinations and in particular, he's been very, very concerned about the psychological impact of, of the suffering uh, following those vaccinations. So, Christian, can we welcome you back to UK Column and say thank you very much for joining us today? And, and thank you for having us. I think it's um, really, really important we do talk about these things more and more. So I'm really grateful um, to be here again. Thank you. OK, well, it's a pleasure as well. And also a big thank you to Debbie Evans from UK Column, because Debbie, you've been really acting as an interface with uh, Charlotte and Christian and a number of other people who've been suffering as a result of the vaccine programme. So I'm going to say to you, thank you very much for facilitating and making this discussion happen today. Thanks very much, Brian. And um, I, like you, and Christian really welcome this and I think this will be a very powerful um, and extremely important interview uh, where Charlotte will be able to put um, over her message and what she would like the audience and MPs to hear so thank you for facilitating it. So I'm going to say uh, straight away to Charlotte tell us um, what took place in Westminster so for people who don't know anything about the subject of uh, vaccine adverse reactions, tell us about this very important meeting. OK, Brian, well, I'm going to start off by saying um, initially that 
our head campaigner, Caroline Pover, um, would normally have taken lead in this because she's been instrumental from the start in getting this campaign underway. And she first spoke to Sir Christopher Chope in April and they had an hour long conversation about how the first APPG meeting should be run. Um, so our expectations versus reality, I would say were a little bit mismatched. And I think um, Christian will agree with me. Emotions were very high in the meeting. You could cut the atmosphere with a knife. Um, so Caroline would normally be doing all of this because she has been campaigning, writing many letters, along with a man called Brian Howard, who's also vaccine injured in our group. The pair of them have been doing such amazing work over the last year. And I can't emphasise enough um, that we wouldn't be where we are without them. So I just want to say um, Caroline Pover is in hospital at the moment and we wish her well and we want her back. <laughs> um, so moving on to the meeting, um, we originally had 70 vaccine injured members coming to Westminster with us for the first APPG. And the, the, the first meeting was scheduled for September. Um, it was a big um, event for us. We went to a lot of trouble. Um, our members booked hotels, transport. It was very expensive. Um, and then obviously what happened was the Queen passed away and that date got postponed. We then heard from Sir Christopher Chope's office that we would get um, another invite, another date once everything had you know, cleared over. So, so we waited in anticipation for that. And um, that date was then given to us um, just under seven days before the date of the meeting. Now, um, I don't know if any of anyone's ever tried to organise a large event with people coming from all over different parts of the country. But doing that when people are very, very ill um, as well and disabled and bereaved is really, really difficult. So a week's notice, we knew that we weren't going to get the numbers that we'd had in September to come. So it was very, very short notice. On top of that, Caroline Pover was just about to be admitted to hospital and she was really suffering and in pain. So it took her a long time to get the, the email sent out to all the supportive MPs that we have, which is 64. So that's, that's a decent number. We have a lot of MPs that are supporting their vaccine injured constituents now. So we're, we're, we're really quite well supported. Um, but the emails didn't go out till Friday. They wouldn't have got them till Monday. And unfortunately, a lot of MPs diaries were full by then. So that is how we explain the low numbers of MPs at the first meeting. Plus the agenda was slightly changed. So in the original meeting that we had planned with the Christopher Chope, it was going to be solely focused on the vaccine injured and bereaved and what we felt needed to change, the reform that needs to happen um, in order to support us and people in the future that become injured by vaccines, because we're not just talking about us, we're talking about future generations of people that take a vaccine and become injured. This isn't just about the here and now, this is about future. Um, so, so, so we arrived and um, Christian joined us. Uh, he was invited by us. Um, he supported a, a great deal over the last year. 
And I think I'll let Christian uh, join me now and, and just tell a little bit of his side of the story, how, how it started, and we'll go from there. Excellent. So, yeah, that, thanks, Charlotte, for inviting me. I was actually really honoured to be invited. I remember receiving an email from you saying, we've been thinking about who else we would like to come um, as a representative of UKCB family. So I was really privileged to be honoured to be asked because I think this is a huge event that is designed specifically to look after and hear from the injured and bereaved and work out what is the right way forward. So it was a real honour to, to, to be invited. So, you know, yes, it was short notice and I was fortunate enough to be able to rearrange and get there. And one thing that sort of I noticed quite quickly was also the agenda seemed to have changed slightly from what I was expecting it to be in September. So originally I, I was expecting there to be a main speaker followed by representatives from UKCB family and Vib UK who were going to be speaking and in, in the kind of uh, horseshoe of the MPs they were going to be in there. So that was what I was originally expecting. And so when the invitation came out and I spoke to Charlton and all of a sudden found actually it's only the cardiologist speaker who will be speaking. I was slightly concerned that actually would the vaccine injured and bereaved be sidelined? So that was one of my initial concerns. And the kind of put that to one side and we I turned up on Thursday and I was running a bit late and found Charlotte in, in the queue. So we, we joined and it became quite apparent that there wasn't as many injured as as, as Charlotte rightly says that, that we would have had it in September because I don't think I I appreciated just how unwell everyone is. It, it's, you know, I've spoken to a number of people from the UKCB family, but actually getting to meet them and talking about the complications, getting down here, how how hard it is, I don't think people really appreciate just the level of planning and the physical and emotional toll it's going to take on someone just to get there and then attend a, meet, a meeting. And it was an, an extremely emotive um, event, you, you know, when, when I originally got there, you could just see people were feeling finally, you know, we're getting a voice. And I think we've spent a lot of time trying to get the voice of the injured and bereft in heard by the political class. And this has been extremely important because we need them to be representing their constituents. So to me, this was such an important day. It was so, so important. It wasn't to me a jolly. This was something really, really key and important to be done. It was, it was a job to be done that had to be facilitated well, and it had to ha be handled really sensitive, sensitively because they were very, very emotional people, rightly so. So when we got there, it was very clear there was a lot of people who weren't injured and bereaved who were there, which is fine. I've got no problem with that. But I think one thing that was concerning me was the voice of the injured and bereaved were sort of becoming smaller and smaller, which is the whole thing that they've experienced so far. They are being, their voices are often being silenced, ignored, dismissed, attacked. So I was again, sort of my alarm bells were slightly ringing, thinking, I hope, I really hope, that they're not going to get sidelined and they are going to be the focus of this meeting. Now, I appreciate an APPG is there to educate the MPs on specific topics. But to me, a real big mistake, I think, was 
not having the experts by experience, the injured, the bereaved as the main focal point. Now, I may be speaking out of turn that that was my experience. And I'm just wondering, Charlotte, if you kind of feel that echoes where you you come from as well. Yeah, I think anyone that, that was there will 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 say that's that's the case. I mean, it, as I said, the that the original meeting was um, supposed to be us, um, our group and a few representatives plus VIB UK, which is another amazing um, vaccine injured and bereaved group in the UK. It was supposed to be us and our MPs, supportive MPs, um, basically talking through ways in which we can start to get help for people that are vaccine injured, to start to raise awareness of vaccine injury um, in, in all different aspects, so medical, financial and emotionally. Um, unfortunately, it turned into more of what I can describe as a press conference. Um, and I don't know if you felt that it, it was like that, Christian, but it was more us um, listening to a lecture by a doctor, which is, is fine. You know, APPGs are set up to do that. However, the short notice um, meant that there was a lack of MPs to listen to that doctor. So it was just a sound box. There was, there was no... Um, there was no real outcome from that doctor speaking because he was speaking to people that had already heard what he had to say. So if if we'd have had much more notice, I think we would have had a lot of MPs there that would have would have been able to listen, but we weren't given that notice. And plus, you know, I really think, and and I know Christian will agree with me here that this meeting meant so much to the vaccine engine and breathe. It, it really did mean so much. And to not actually have a voice. I can, I can tell you exactly what happened. Once the doctor finished speaking, it was an absolute mess because the injured and bereaved didn't feel they'd had a voice in the meeting. Um, all hell broke loose. The Q&A that was supposed to be about the doctor's lecture turned into a lot of people telling their stories very emotionally. Um, and that was simply because they weren't given a voice again. How was it, who was responsible for the overall organisation of the meeting? Obviously, you and the vaccine injured groups pressed for this event to take forward, uh, to, to, to happen. And uh, Sir Christopher Chope, I know, has been giving uh, a lot of support. But who was in overall control of the setup of the meeting and the date uh, which was chosen for the meeting? Um, I'm not sure, to be honest with you. I think Sir Christopher Chope um, is, is responsible for a lot of it. However, like I said, there was no communication between us and his office until we got the date. So it was really hard for us to have a say in what happened. Um, and I think if if we'd have had more notice, we would have been able to get more MPs there to listen. So I think going forward in future, you know, lessons that need to be learned is that the 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 MPs need to listen to us a bit more, in particular the office of Sir Christopher Chope and um, other third parties need to listen to us a little bit more. 
and we all need to work together because we can provide 64 supportive MPs to come and listen at these all party parliamentary group meetings. But without our input, without our vaccine injured constituents and bereaved constituents and their supportive MPs, you are literally just talking to a room full of people that have heard it all before. So it becomes a press conference rather than a meeting that can actually achieve something going forward. Right. OK, thank you for that. And the other question I'd like to ask and ask and reply in any way you like, but um, are, are you able to say who the doctor was who spoke? Yes, yeah, it was Dr. Asim Malhotra, and he presented the same paper that he presented several weeks before at a press conference, and the paper that he'd released, I, I believe, a week before that. Um, you can find that paper online. I believe it was um, published in the Insulin Resistance Journal. Um, so you can you can go and read that. That's that's been available now for nearly a month. What was the basic theme that he presented? Yeah, okay. So um, the paper was all about how pharmaceutical industries um, work with with um, the government and, and these people and basically how the numbers don't add up. So different ratios of numbers and ways to work them out shows that there is actually a higher risk. With mRNA injections, of cardiac um, disability. Um, you've got to imagine as well that a lot of us are injured by AstraZeneca. So focusing solely on mRNA um, isn't, isn't great for us either. Um, a lot of people in the audience were bereaved from AstraZeneca, have lost loved ones who've passed away after an AstraZeneca injection. So it was solely focused on the mRNA um, injections. What do you think you did achieve out of the meeting? Obviously, it took place and there were still quite a lot of people there. Um, did you did you come away feeling that you had achieved something? I think I think the the, the best thing that we achieved that day is um, meeting our members in, in person and meeting VIB UK and Christian, all the people that supported us. That for me was the best outcome of the day. Um, aside from that, look, we've got an all-party parliamentary group on vaccine damage. This is great. That's a positive. Secondly, it's been debated again this week in Parliament. Again, this is brilliant. It's all things that wouldn't have happened a year ago. And, and I take this as a very positive thing. I think the, the first inaugural meeting wasn't a great success as far as the vaccine engine of bereaved go. Um, we've, we've got a clever bunch of people in our groups. You know, vaccine injury doesn't happen to one type of person. It, it happens to people across a lot of different professions and specialities. We have scientists, doctors, lawyers, um, all types of people in our groups. And they are a clever bunch. And um, You'll see that we've made a statement. This was written up beautifully by Caroline Pover. Um, we've got a document folder. Um, and these things aren't rushed and put together in a rushed way. They, they were put together very concisely with what we actually need. And um, 
we had hoped that we would get at least 10 minutes just to present these to MPs. As it was, I had to send one of our more able members to run out of the door after MPs with our document folders because we weren't given the time to network with them and present them. So it was a bit of a disaster in that respect. But like I say, there were a lot of positive things that have come from this. And, and, and to have even imagined that we've got this far a year ago, um, it was in our wildest dreams, you know, the fact that we've, we've managed to get to, to Westminster, there's been debates in Parliament, this is all good. My response to that is everything I've seen over the years when we've been trying to report on interesting subjects, we'll choose words very carefully, um, and we've been starting to deal with MPs and events in Westminster, things happen unbelievably slowly. And I can remember many years ago uh, when we were dealing with issues around child abuse, feeling this intense frustration that you would have expected people to react very promptly and professionally. And um, on several occasions, we ended up in in what I can only describe as stodge, but um, that's that's as it is, and you have to try and work through that. Um, now you've you've mentioned the statement. We will actually get on to that because I I've been really impressed reading through uh, what you've written as a sort of overview of the whole vaccine affair. I think it's very powerful. So we will come on to that. But if I can just say to Christian, what what was your feeling about the meeting? Did you did you did you come away feeling that you've achieved anything positive out of it? Yeah, I, I, I do actually. I, I think that it was in, it was important to understand, as you just rightly said, things turn go very slowly, and for a lot of time, for, for a long time, for probably two and a half years, there's been a lot of very, very concerned professionals and members of the public who have wanted to get in front of MPs to express their concerns. And I think something that's come out of this is we have to go at a certain pace that's right and we can't sacrifice certain people to get our own agenda pushed forward. So I think some really important lessons have been learned from Thursday, and that is that we have to go at the right pace. We can't make people listen to topics that they're not ready to listen to. It's something we've been discussing quite a bit. In, in general, when you're trying to have conversations, you've got to go at the other person's speed. So I think what one thing that was really important to come out of the meeting was we need to listen to the injured and bereft. They are, they're the wealth of knowledge. They, this is, for a lot of people, this has become their life, unfortunately. And we need to spend more time listening to them to work out how we are going to move forward. Um, the, the, the doctor's speech, absolutely fine. I've got no problems with what he's saying. I just think maybe it was a bit of a mistake to have that at the opening meeting. I think we should have really been listening more to those people. So it's what I've got out of this is actually we need to just learn from things rather than then take to social media and blame the fact that MPs aren't listening. They are listening. And actually attacking them doesn't achieve us anything because... As, as Charlotte rightly says, we've got over 60 MPs who want to support, who are very supportive. And by then sort of saying you didn't turn up, you know, bad you, doesn't help the, the cause at all. It actually just creates a bigger divide. And I think lots of people are so desperate to see an end to any suffering that they are not always aware of some of the damage that can be caused by rushing in and trying to um, achieve their goal. And they believe their goal is, is just and right. But 
we can never have a mindset of a greater good because that doesn't ever turn out good. We have to protect the people who have been injured, the vulnerable. We have to put them as a priority because if we prioritise them, we will in turn learn how to help anyone else who is injured in the future. So there are lots of good things that actually came out of it. And, and as Charlotte rightly says, meeting everyone was huge. I found myself extremely emotional talking to a lot of, lot of members, which I did not expect to feel. And a lot of that was because I just didn't get it. I've naively thought I understood a lot of the vaccine injuries that are there. I don't. And when people are just telling me about their experiences and the medical procedures or what's gone wrong or the emotional part of it, I, I'm still nowhere near understanding what I need to. So it's really, it was really important to me to think, I need to have more conversations and I need to get more. And that, so that sort of was something that really came out. It was understanding just just how debilitating these um, injuries are. And, and, and as we say, some people, many people have lost their lives. And I think it, it's, it, it to me is actually, it doesn't matter if mistakes were made, it's actually okay, because we all, all make them. Something that kind of needs to come out of this is just to hold our hands up and go, okay, yeah, I got that wrong. Actually, what we should have done, we needed a lot more time. I have a feeling the time aspect was a real mistake to be given kind of seven, eight days notice of whatever it is, was a mistake. But that's fine. We can learn for the next one. Actually, we need to have a good month in advance so we can get the MPs to clear their diary to make sure they can turn up. And, and so those things are really important to me that we learn from it rather than start sort of having a lot of infighting about what happened. We need to find a way forward from this. Um, but yeah, just to echo what Charlotte said, honestly, meeting everyone was just was 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 so so educational but also so emotional for me yeah well presumably that that was one of the big things of people not feeling alone because this is that this has been one of the areas that i've picked up on is the is the comment that you're there suffering and you feel that you're the only person when you when you can come together with other people that that is a very positive thing in itself I wonder, Debbie, whether I can just bring you in here, because I know that you you were actually very excited when uh, you knew that an all parliamentary group session was going to be conducted on this subject. Um, but you also flagged up to, to me that you were concerned about how people were going to even be able to travel uh, to the venue, because many of the people are people who've now got disabilities uh, they're not well and traveling can be very difficult for them. These people are extremely ill, many of them. And when I speak to Charlotte, often it becomes apparent to me that they've normalized having to catch trains and tubes to get to hospital appointments, to get to meetings, to navigate this whole nightmare that they're going through. And, and I was worried, you know, we're looking at 60 or 70 seriously ill people with unstable illnesses, many of them. It would be a bit like emptying a couple of hospital wards, acute hospital wards, straight into the Palace of Westminster. You know, what, what safety risk assessments have been done, what arrangements would be made for quiet places and, and what medical attention would be available should they need it. So that was always a big, a big concern of mine. And of course, the effort that these people have to make um, to get to, to meetings like this. So for, for, the, for the whole fact that 
70 were going to go um, and Charlotte still managed to get um, I can't remember the exact number but I think it was over 15 Charlotte will correct me if I'm wrong but she still managed to get um, those people there and they managed to get themselves their huge effort I mean they must have been exhausted and I was a little bit disappointed when I was watching to see so many other people had been invited via Twitter I think and even Charlotte when she'd arrived with her group after having queued which I would have hoped that they wouldn't needed to have done um, when she got into the room she even couldn't find anywhere to sit you know she had to ask people if they would move their seats so that the vaccine injured and bereaved could actually sit where they could hear the meeting so I was disappointed and I would have liked to have seen a few more reasonable adjustments made for them, a bit more tender loving care perhaps, because they are the experts by experience and it should be nothing about them without them. Thank you. Thank you for that, Debbie. Charlotte, if I come back to you, I think if, if you'd like, um, this would be a good time for you to take us through this excellent document that uh, has been produced and if, if I remember correctly from a few minutes ago you said Caroline I think had, had had a big input into this document together with other people. I've got some um, images of each page in the order that you've got them in the document so um, we can take our viewers and listeners through in the logical sequence from that document itself but you already mentioned the family statement so um, I think that would be a good thing to to bring up on screen and perhaps you could just talk us through it a little bit are you happy to do that yes of course Brian yeah no problem I don't know whether I'm going to get through the whole document <laughs> it no. might just have to be the statement no. today but um, yeah we can we can certainly run through it yeah I'll read a little bit of it it says um UK CV family proposes that, that there be a more comprehensive uh, adverse reaction protocol in place uh, supporting the medical financial and emotional needs of the vaccine injured in a more timely manner as follows and then there's three key elements there's medical financial and emotional and um, you are saying that uh, UK CV family requests the establishment of a more robust follow-up system uh, to the currently available yellow card system. So take us through that and, and how these key points were put together, what they mean for, for the people who've suffered a vaccine injury. Of course, yeah. So the first, the first thing under medical is establishment of nice guidelines. Uh, what we find is when people first have or first go to whatever, wherever they are when they have their adverse reaction, whether that be in hospital or A&E or they go to their GP because their feet are going numb or, you know, something like this, um, there aren't any guidelines for people that have adverse reactions. So if you ask your GP, um, what would you do if someone came to you having had or having thought they'd had an adverse reaction to a COVID vaccine or any vaccine, what they will tell you to do is go and report to the yellow card system. Now, th that's fair enough. We should all be reporting to the yellow card system, but 
it doesn't help our practical symptoms and it doesn't help our health. The yellow card system um, do nothing medically for you, so it is just a reporting system. And we've been told by a lot of the doctors treating us that they don't know what to do with us. They don't know where to go next with us. Um, so nice guidelines um, would be the first thing. Um, secondly, training within the healthcare system for those who come into contact with potential patients with adverse reactions. So we want doctors to be actively, proactively looking at whether someone's had a vaccination in the last so many weeks when they present with an unusual symptom. We don't want to have to tell our doctors um, ourselves what we think is going on. We want our doctors to be asking that question, have you taken any new medication? Have you had a vaccine in the last so many days? Um, so that should be, the, the training should be there. It should be CPD, the doctors. It should have been CPD. This is partly why we're a little bit um, upset that we're not included in module one of the um, COVID-19 public inquiry because that was preparedness for the pandemic. And June Rain herself said she expected over 100,000 adverse reactions. So why wasn't training put in place for doctors and, and healthcare providers that would come into contact with people who had an adverse reaction? So we want that in place now. Um, we would like a dedicated research team to understand the nature of adverse reactions. So I naively believed that um, once I reported my adverse reaction, that I would be given a, um, a time and a day to present myself at a, a research facility where I would have blood tests and, and be observed and, and that people want to find out why um, I was going numb slowly from the feet up. But um, unfortunately, that isn't the case. So if you have an adverse reaction at the moment, there are no dedicated research teams to try and find out why. Um, and finding out why means that we prevent it in the future with other people. So that, I think, is a very important point. Um, a national awareness campaign highlighting possible symptoms of adverse reactions to vaccine, vaccines sorry, and encouraging those suffering to seek help. Um, so a lot of people will have what they call medically unexplained symptoms. So if their doctor isn't pointing out to them or asking them if they've um, had a vaccine in the last so many weeks, they might be just thinking, well, you know, I, I don't know why I've, I've suddenly lost the feeling in my feet or I don't know why I've suddenly got tremors. And, and, and it can be um, very frightening. It can be very lonely. Um, and making the, the nation aware that it can happen um, would give people places to go should that happen. It makes it a much less lonely and frightening experience. So I do believe that... The general population should be informed and there should be a campaign, a national awareness campaign to, to highlight adverse reactions. Um, vaccine manufacturers should take responsibility for investigating adverse reactions to their products. Now, they have earned billions um, over the last year or so and they will continue to earn billions. They can invest money into this. We know they can why aren't they um, and that's what we would call for you've mentioned things like uh, continuous professional development i think that's what cpd is if i remember correctly um, so we're introducing some um, 
some debate around what professionals are and are not doing. So I just wondered whether we could just hear a little bit from Christian on that, perhaps. Yeah, sure. Um, I, th I think Chant's absolutely spot on the money with nice guidelines have to be set up because that is really important. The, we knew early on that, um, for example, the AstraZeneca injection, uh, there were blood clots associated with that. And I was so, so, I don't even know what the right word is, dis disappointed, disgusted, I don't know, to find out that actually people like paramedics weren't informed of things to look out to until the summer of 2022. Um, and I've asked other doctors, you know, have you had guidance? Have you had guidelines put out to sort of look out for this or look out for that symptom? It could be related. And they said no. And I found that that feels to me very, very troubling because actually people are going to be presenting to their GP or A&E and if they're not asking the right probing questions they're not going to get the right diagnosis and if we don't get a accurate diagnosis first time we miss out on early intervention and if we miss out on early intervention the we greatly increase the chance of avoidable deaths so it's it, it, it's it's very worrying that these things aren't there I've spoken to numerous people people about this and, and especially speaking to the injured because sometimes you think this can't be true, this isn't really happening is it? And once you actually then start to look at people's notes and things like that you see there are huge mistakes happening physically. For example someone being told that their chest pain uh, and their breathlessness and all those things are down to anxiety and so being given things like beta blockers or antidepressants and only I don't know six months nine months later to find out actually they've got heart failure it it it, it strikes me as as negligent that we're not we're not educating the doctors to know what to look out for because if they're unable with the specific test they're using to get a diagnosis it does not mean that everything is psychological in nature sometimes it is and i i, I work with that quite often you, you know the medically unexplained physically physical symptoms so I'm not saying they're not there but too many people are too many people's physical symptoms are being uh, assigned as medically un unexplained symptoms and that is really worrying because we are going to miss so many vitally important physical complications that if we can address them early on we can manage or we can help people to get better if we ignore them we really are increasing the risk of of death that could be avoided. Yeah, Christian, thank you for that. And uh, just uh, Debbie, what comes into my mind is you've had interactions in the recent past with GPs and you've been quite astonished at their lack of knowledge around not only the vaccines themselves, but issues around vaccine safety. I think that the big thing was when I wrote to the Royal College of General Practitioners and the Honourable Secretary uh, wrote back um, replying to my questions about why GPs were not seeing the serious adverse reactions, why they weren't reporting them, and why they seemingly were scratching their heads not knowing what to do. And he informed me that GPs were neither told the ingredients of the injection, neither were they told any serious adverse reactions to expect, you know, what they might be. And now we know that there's a huge variability in, in serious adverse reactions, a huge amounts of different symptoms. And June Rain did say that they were expecting 100,000 serious adverse reactions. And yet clearly 
There's been no information given to any of the primary care teams. There's been no team or um, a, a kind of a place for, for people to go to if they were going to be one of the 100,000 that were expected. There was no mechanism, mechanism in place whatsoever to deal with what June Rain was expecting. So um, we've also got to look very closely at the ICD-11 code as well, because whilst there's a code for um, unvaccinated or partially vaccinated, there's no coding for vaccine injured. And that's what we're fighting for as well, because unless we've got a code, many of those many of these people are slipping through the nets because they don't have a diagnosis. I think um, Christian and Debbie have summed up the rest of what I would say. So we'll move on. But um, the first thing in the, the financial section is a reduction in the eligibility criteria for the vaccine damage payment. Now, um, I can't remember the exact figures and they won't be up to date now anyway. But out of the people that have been declined the vaccine damage payment so far, um, none of them have actually been told that they're not disabled enough. So, so far, they've all been, they've all actually met the eligibility criteria. However, the VDP are saying there's no causal link. So the ones that have been refused, that is what I'm led to believe so far. However, it's a 60% eligibility criteria. Now, if you hit, say, 50%, that's 50% of your quality of life is gone, and yet you are not eligible to receive a payment from the government, which is a poor amount of money anyway. Um, a lot of people have lost their, their jobs. Obviously, they can't work anymore, some people. I haven't worked for over a year. Um, a lot of people have had to um, get into some quite big debt, trying to keep themselves afloat, trying to keep their homes. Some people have lost their homes. Um, so we need the, the eligibility criteria to come down, or we want it to be a sliding scale. So by sliding scale, I mean it is looked at on the basis of how much your quality of life has been affected by this adverse reaction. Um, secondly, we would like the removal of the eligibility criteria completely if there is a clear medical diagnosis or bereavement caused by vaccination. So as soon as a medical professional says that your disability, your adverse reaction has been caused by the vaccination, you should be eligible for that payment. And um, if it's on a sliding scale, obviously that is adjusted to how, how much you're affected. It's very difficult because they part of the criteria is that you have to prove that you're going to be 60% disabled for life. Now, a lot of us don't know whether we're going to get better. A lot of us don't know whether we're going to be stuck at this this type of um, have this type of quality of life forever or not. So that again is a very difficult thing to say, and I don't know how they they assess that. To be honest with you, um, in cases where there's a medical diagnosis or bereavement clearly determined as caused by vaccination, so if someone dies and this is definitely because of the vaccine, 
There should be a payment of twenty. Uh, there should be a payment after twenty eight days or within twenty eight days of that report. So, people like um, Gareth Eve, who lost his um, beautiful wife Lisa Shaw, the the BBC reporter, doesn't have to wait um, over a year and a half to be paid the vaccine damage payment, which is an insult, I think. Um, Financial contribution must be made towards any healthcare expenses as incurred as a result of the NHS not being able to meet the medical needs of the vaccine injured. Um, I myself have spent over £10,000. I've had to book another private appointment this week. That's another two to £300 ago. Um, a lot of people have taken out loans to pay for private medical care. Um, you know, it's getting des people are getting desperate. I'm looking at my jewellery box thinking how much gold can I hock here to pay for my next medical um bill. So I think covering people's medical expenses should be inclusive of this. Um and in cases where vaccination was a condition of employment and the employee suffered an adverse reaction, the employer recognises the adverse reaction as a workplace injury. Um I think this would help a lot of people because that actually shifts the, the onus back onto the employer as well. Um, a lot of employee, employers have been very understanding of people that are vaccine injured. However, some have not, and that needs to change as well. So I think that kind of sums up our financial section, but I'd be pleased to, to hear what uh, yourself, Brian, Debbie and Christian have to say. Okay, thank you very much for that. Well. What you're demonstrating, Charlotte, for me is 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 how good your document is because you're you're working through these points which are down in writing. They're very concise, and they're very pertinent. And I think this is giving us a very focused discussion around these uh, these issues. Um, what I picked up on in in what you've just been talking about is you said, well, um, uh, it comes down to no causal link. So the judgment is being made on whether there is a cause which demonstrates that uh, that somebody's um, adverse reactions are indeed caused by a vaccine. And this to me is the heart of the matter because if we're talking about causal link, we must be looking at evidence. What is the medical evidence that this is the case? And I don't see any comprehensive system for looking at evidence. So I see data which is collected disappearing into a very dark black hole um, where the vaccine injured are being told, for example, no, you don't meet the threshold, but we don't actually see any evidence which proves uh, or, or explains how that statement was made. Um, this, this to me, I think, is the insidious nature of what's going on here, that we're told vaccines are safe, but no evidence is produced that they are safe. And then conversely, when somebody uh, becomes unwell and it seems to anybody with common sense that vaccines have been a part to play in that, we can't find any evidence to support that. But I can also add to that that there are many people who ended up in hospital where hospital consultants were saying to them point blank, yes, you have a vaccine injury. Uh, we have one 
lady who we hope to speak to again uh, very shortly, Nicola, that we did an interview with because her husband ultimately suffered from Guillain-Barré syndrome and was, was severely paralyzed in hospital. But the whole of the medical team on that ward said, you're suffering from a vaccine adverse reaction as are other people in the ward. But this, this medical evidence and professional medical opinion that people have been damaged then seems to be dismissed by the system. I think uh, what the vaccine damage payment scheme go by is the word probability. So causal link is kind of thrown out of the window. But if you remember rightly, when um, I've had many communications with um, Professor Sir Munir Permahamid, who's the chair of the Commission for Human Medicines, and the, the narrative from him is coincidence. All of these are coincidences, when clearly what we're saying is if they are coincidences or if they are genuinely not linked, then what's the problem with having an investigation? Because unless we have a specific investigation, we will never know. And the financial costs that many of these people are having to put the bill for huge amounts. I mean, I know in Charlotte's group, she's got parents of children who are having to wait eight months for scans uh, when they're query myocarditis. And that's the, that's the closest the NHS can give them as a date. Whereas these children should be scanned immediately. But, you know, you can't, people don't have money trees. They just don't. And the struggles are absolutely huge. And what's even more worrying, you know, and, and I found so humbling when I've spoken to Charlotte and other vaccine injured families is that it's not about the money. You know, the money, the money will only go to help them get the help they need. That's what they'd be using it for. It's not about the money. £120,000 maximum is nothing when they've lost their, their businesses, their jobs, maybe their homes. And they just want to be listened to, to be believed, to be heard and to get some semblance of normality back in their lives so they're not feeling poorly. I know Charlotte will want to come in at this point, I'm sure. Yeah, I was just going to say, Debbie, another thing is, is that when you receive the vaccine damage payment scheme, your benefits are immediately stopped. So if you receive personal independence payment, disability payment, and um, whatever you manage to receive from the government to support you, as soon as you receive that £120,000 payment, your benefits are stopped. That is it. You get no more help from the government. So then you have to spend your £120,000 that you may have loans that you've got to pay off. There may be parts of your mortgage you need to pay off because you haven't been able to for the last year and a half. You've got to pay back friends and family for doctor's appointments that you've had to pay for privately or adaptions to your home if you're disabled, wheelchairs. These are all things that people are having to do. So once you've taken that out of the £120,000, I mean, how much are you left with? How much are you actually left with in compensation? It's very little. So I think I think I think that's shocking. The fact that benefits are stopped when you receive this as well. I just want to say something that Charlotte to what Charlotte just said. I didn't know that those bits get stopped if you get 
the payment. I did not know that. And this is why, to me, it, 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 it was such a missed opportunity to ha not have the vaccine injured and bereaved speaking at the first thing, because this is what MPs need to know. I think they would be as shocked as I am here. I've spent a lot of time talking to, to the injured, and I didn't know that. So, you know, we need to be listening to the people who, who have researched this, who have, who, have, who have spent a long time doing it. So I just wanted to highlight that these are the reasons why we have to be listening to this group more than anyone else. It, it's all very good listening to a doctor talking about misinformation of vaccines. I, I get that. That's really important. There are really important topics. But when we're talking about the vaccine injured and what we need to do for them, we need to be listening because I learn every single time I listen to Charlotte, Caroline, and anyone else, Chris, Wayne, any of them, I learn something and it's so important. So I, I really wanted just to highlight that because that felt so important to me. One of my big fears is everyone is getting re-traumatised, even if it's in small bits, big bits, constantly there is trauma after trauma happening to people. So you mentioned people being denied the payment that's going to have huge implications for them no one's going to want to you know go through this whole procedure uh, unless they believe you know this has happened there this is this is not an easy process to go through so you've got a load of people who are physically injured and because of the censorship the attacks they've received they're also psychologically extremely vulnerable they've also struggled with trauma from having a medical procedure they're also then being re-traumatised every time they get a blinking text message from the GP saying, come and have your booster shot. They're yeah. also getting traumatised when they walk down the road and they see a vaccination sign. So we're constantly having these people so, so bombarded with trauma. And my worry, what, might be, what you say here, is accurate. You are right. They are being traumatised over and over. No one's listening to them. And people are frightened to say, this is how I feel, because they don't want to be judged as mad or going crazy but i can see this i can see this in people they tell me in secret you know i i, I walk a different route so i don't go past a vaccination center because i find it i start to shake you get people saying i don't think i'm going to go to a hospital appointment even though they're about they may well be dying because they are terrified of what's happened to them so their trauma because we have not listened to them we have not encouraged them to openly speak and sort of said, yes, this is what's happened to you. That is developing into post-traumatic stress disorder for many people. Not everyone, but many of them will be suffering with PTSD. You know, when people tell me this is what happened to me this week, I fell over and my heart was going crazy and I didn't call an ambulance. I didn't go to hospital. I just hoped I'd be OK. That is a classic symptom to me that someone has tra a trauma response because we are not listening to them with compassion and they're being constantly bombarded with more and more trauma. So I know I'm jumping into the emotional part here, but in response to your question, yes, denying someone the payment is, is dreadful. This cutoff is just completely wrong. You're either 60% disabled for life and you get it, or you're not and you get nothing. And that's why Charlotte's idea of a sliding scale is absolutely right. It, it, it's completely right, because if someone even if they say, look, you're going to go and you get this amount because you're only, I don't know, 10% disabled, it's an acknowledgement that this happened to me. And that's what is essential to everyone, that they are believed it's taken seriously. Okay, because as we were just saying, it's not about the money. This is about being heard and, and, and someone taking accountability that, okay, 
people want to say that vaccine, these vaccines are safe and effective, you have to then acknowledge that for many people, they are not. And I'm just being putting that out there to the people who are saying they are safe. You, you know, I don't think they are, but there is a, because I'm working with the injured and I see the, the damage they are causing. But for the people who are saying all the time they're safe and effective, once we see that sliding scale, you will realize that there are so many people who are being injured. And in response to sort of Charlotte talking about the financial part, um, you know, if all of this was here, if we had those research facilities that she was discussing, an investigation into the safety, and then looking after people, you would actually see that there would be an answer to the debate, are they safe? Should we do it? Because people that chose these to take one and felt they were doing the right thing, you know, by ignoring them, no one's going to take any vaccine anymore. It's it's causing so much mistrust in the medical system altogether. So again, people are now starting to mistrust all aspects of medicine, which is a trauma response to what's happened to them. So I know I'm going off topic here a little bit, but it, it, it feels very, very important that what happens emotionally to someone after being injured through a medical procedure ripples through the rest of their life. And I think that's the bit that's getting missed out here. Charlotte, would you like to take us through um, what was seen as the key points in, in, in that emotional paragraph? Yeah, of course. So, so the first thing is a funding funding for a helpline dedicated to the emotional support of the vaccine injured. Um, this has been very difficult for everyone that is injured and bereaved. It's been extremely traumatic, and like Christian said, there's people that have a lot of mistrust now. Um, we've been gaslit a lot. You know, we've been told that it's not happening, um, and we've had we've we've been caught in the middle of this real kind of um, social. It's a social stigma, really. Um, so we've we have had suicides on the groups, um, both in the UK and internationally, in the vaccine injured support groups, and I believe those suicides were preventable. Um, they were just literally people that weren't heard, weren't cared for, and couldn't see a way out. Um, you imagine, you know, debilitating symptoms, and on top of that, you're not believed. And that's what these people face. So we need we need a proper helpline. We need, as it says in the in the statement, we do need um, training for mental health organisations such as the BACP um, to be encouraged to include support for the vaccine injured as part of their area of expertise. So we need pr proper professionals having um, more training in this area. And um, Christian will be able to tell you more about what, what he's finding we need emotionally. But um, we actually need these people to step forward and, and start to have this training in place. We need people to, to help uh, support us emotionally. Um, and, and we need to feature the medical trauma aspect as well, the PTSD that people have. We do have people on the group, including myself, who find it very hard to go to hospital when they're having an emergency. And this is because of previous experiences we've had. 
So um, I'm the first to admit I'm, I'm one of these people. Uh, we need to have this as part of the syllabus for training for psychologists and psychotherapists and, and counsellors, so they're aware of that. And, and a national campaign aimed at raising awareness of and removing the stigma towards adverse reaction due to vaccination. So I'd ha I hate to say this, but this is on, and I don't like to say sides because I think we're all big, one big humanity and we should be. However, when you, when you have a, a, a topic so divisive as this, you do tend to get camps of people with opinions and I will refer to them as two different sides. Um, we have a lot of stick from both sides of the coin. Um, you know, as much as, as I appreciated Dr. Malhotra speaking the other day, um, it wasn't the appropriate time in my opinion. However, if I say that in the wrong way, I know there's going to be a whole load of people that say, but don't you want this to stop? Don't you want, uh, you know, you you must be coming from, from the other side of, of, of the view. And then there are people on the other side that don't believe us and, and say that, you know, Dr. Malhotra is not, not um, he's spreading misinformation. So you get caught right in the middle. And I think, I think Christian was quite shocked to feel that as well lately. Um, having, having now been very much firmly in our camp with, with the vaccine injured and supporting us, he's felt a little bit of what we felt for the last year and a half, nearly two years. And the, the stigma around it needs to come to, to, to stop. It needs to be dropped. You know, we're injured. We need help. Um, that's all we want. We, we're not we're not here to kind of shout off about different views. We we just we're just people that are ill that need help. At the APPG, there was like there was two conversations being said. There was one about should the vaccines just stop, and what do we do to support those who are injured? And I think a big mistake happened, which was people sort of circulated a flyer that made it look like it was going to be all about should the vaccine be stopped. And these two conversations sometimes can't live together. They have to be separated out. Um, as Charlotte kind of alluded to there, when I've pointed out some of the things that I think have been that were damaging during Thursday's meeting, for example, when the speaker refers to the pharmaceutical companies as psychopaths, or, uh, and I know, I, I understand, I completely get the sentiment, but actually there are going to be people who are injured who are now dependent on medication for the rest of their life. That's quite, many people are not psychologically ready to hear that. That's, that can actually damage people. And so when I sort of said, I think the use of language can be quite tough, I will be attacked with what you don't want the rollout to stop. And it's like, that's not what I'm saying. And I think people's emotions are so, so raw at the moment that they're getting in the way of helping people who are really, really poorly and hurt. Um, and, and that's the bit that is very, very difficult. So the emotional component here is really, really, it's complex. It looks straightforward that everyone just needs to be listened to, but actually it is really complex because you say the wrong thing at the wrong time and you get attacked. And, and, and that's really difficult. And many people are struggling who want to really help. They struggle to, to bracket out some of their own views or their beliefs about what's going on and put the injured person first. 
and so Sean is absolutely right there needs to be more awareness and more training for working with this sort of group and with really divisive issues in general um, you know I, I, I do I really I do want a, a helpline that's kind of actually going to help that to me is the really important thing but until people know what it is that can be done to help is, is, is so important and the other part that Charlotte started off by saying was unfortunately there have been suicides and, and you know that takes a, such an emotional toll on on everyone involved of course for the families of the person who's taken their own life but it also takes a toll on the support group that that person's been in on the admin staff who have been trying to help that person or help other people because people become very affected you know you can get PTSD not when something specifically happens to you you witness something so someone um, you don't have to be the driver of a car crash to get PTSD you can see the car crash and that can impact you so you've got a lot of people inside these support groups who have been who have become aware that there are suicides and that itself is very traumatic and so you've got a lot of the admin support who are offering unbelievable support to these to vaccine injured and bereaved people huge amount of support and, and it, it's um, and I take my hat off to everything they're doing because they literally are saving people's lives what I'm setting up with Charlotte is to offer those admin people support because they then need a a confidential a safe space to be able to talk about how that impacted them so the emotional component is really complex it's not just let's listen and support someone who's been injured absolutely that is that is fundamental but there are all these other parts that come off from it and I and, I, and as I said to you earlier I think that if we get that wrong we greatly increase the chance of people developing PTSD so yeah. it's it's so so apparent to me um, and, and and actually it's also it's the catch-22 because people will, will be going to the GP saying I, I've got chest pain or whatever and they get told they're anxious and because they're really injured they will become anxious because they think what is going on for me and that can sometimes be the bit that that doctors will latch on to actually you are really depressed or you are really anxious but but the mental health component has been because of the injury and and that's the bit that sometimes gets missed so again it's more awareness um, of injuries that they do happen the doctors need to be asking far more probing questions in order to be able to support them physically and be able to support them emotionally as well yeah I think we've covered some really tremendous uh, ground here because anybody who wasn't aware that there was even a problem will know as a result of this discussion today but let's uh, watch this little clip to see how things take place in Westminster it is often the case that events recorded via the yellow card scheme would have happened anyway. Now, I feel very passionately about tackling vaccine misinformation head on because the truth is we are not in a position to be complacent. Within the UK, there are still people dying because they have not been vaccinated and uptake among certain communities is still far too low. But the challenge is also global. There are over 20 nations across the world, Sir Roger, who have uh, first-dose vaccine rates lower than 20%. In a country like Burundi, for example, just 0.2% of people have received their first dose. 
the United Kingdom has an important role to play in ensuring low-income countries can access vaccines, but also in making the argument, domestically and on the world stage, that vaccines are safe and they are effective. This not only ensures that we remain better protected against COVID-19 and potential mutations, but also against future pandemics, where trust is a key tool in protecting people and communities across the globe. In conclusion, Sir Roger, this has been an important and a wide-ranging debate, and one that I am glad we were able to facilitate. We in this House may have different views on uh, this particular subject, but we also have a responsibility to protect the public health of the people we represent, and that means using our platforms to make it clear that COVID-19 vaccines are safe and they are effective, something that I'm sure the Minister will wholeheartedly agree with. Minister, Dr Caroline Johnson. Thank you, Sir Roger. It's a pleasure to check under your chairmanship. Um, before I begin, I'd like to thank my honourable friend, the member for Carl Shelton and Washington, Wallington, for his kind words regarding the COVID vaccine programme and for bringing this important and timely debate to this House. And it is timely because we started the COVID-19 Boosters Autumn Scheme just a few weeks ago. Um, before I respond to the points, and I will try and answer all the questions, if I can, made by honourable members, um, I want to thank uh, the members for their support of the vaccine scheme, particularly those on opposition benches from Denton and Redditch and Coatbridge, Criston and Bells Hill. Um, I'd also like to thank each and every person in the country who's come forward for their jabs, as well as the tens of thousands of NHS staff and volunteers who made this happen. Um, my honourable friend from Carl Shelton and Wallington asked why the vaccine programme had worked so well. And indeed, it worked so well due to the dedication and hard work of all that were involved in it, um, from the government to the NHS to volunteers to pharma. And I was honoured to volunteer myself alongside people from my local area as young as 15 and as old as in their 80s. It was truly a community effort. Um, the take-up of the COVID-19 vaccine has been huge, and over 151 million vaccines have been delivered in the UK meaning over 90% of people aged 12 and over have received at least one dose, and more than 40 million have received a booster or third dose. We've also made a great start to the autumn booster campaign. Since the start of the campaign on September the 5th in England, more than 10 million people have stepped forward for their jab. Our safe and effective vaccines have underpinned the government's strategy for living with COVID-19. So, uh, Debbie, um, a clip, safe and effective no mention of any adverse reactions. Uh, what's your take on this? Do you know what, Brian? I mean, I, I, I just, you listen to that, it's like an advert, isn't it? Forget the jab. And this is what we were saying. This was, um, this took place in Parliament yesterday as a result of the APPG that Charlotte and Christian went to last week. So this is, this happened last night. And you can clearly hear that. I mean, we didn't hear serious adverse reactions, really, did we, discussed at all. We didn't hear anything discussed about how the injured were feeling or the fact that the debate was, was brought to discuss safety and vaccine injury. All she was talking about was go and get the jab and thanking the politicians that were present who were supporting the rollout. So 
I mean, the, the, the message was, was never even there. It got completely lost in translation. I, I don't know what um, Charlotte must have, must have been thinking as she was watching that when this meeting was meant to be about her and her group and those with vaccine injuries. She wasn't, she wasn't wanting someone to say, go and get another jab. This actual debate actually came about after a petition. So um, there was a petition that went round and it received over 200,000 signatures. So they had to debate it. Um, the positive side of it that I can take is that there were some very supportive MPs there. Um, again, when we get to work properly with the old party parliamentary group in the way it was, that we thought it was intended, we should have more MPs at events like that. So the positive thing is that a year ago, this would never have happened. A year ago, this was something we could have only dreamt of. So the fact that we had people debating this is, is excellent. Um, what is annoying is when they talk about public health and public safety. And, uh, you know, in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, well, are you not thinking about us? Are we not the public anymore? Um, you know, the injured and bereaved, are we are we not classed as the public? Um, and when they talk about um, volunteers and thanking people for coming forward to help with it all, um, I can think of people in my group that were volunteers, people volunteered to help. And, um, and where have they been left? Now they volunteered their time. Are you thanking those too, Caroline Johnson? Are you helping these people that volunteered for your cause? So um, there's a lot of holes I can pick in it. Um, I know a lot of the vaccine injured were sitting at home and had very high heart rates watching it. Um, but I see a lot of positive news coming from it. The fact it is being discussed, it is being talked about. Look, twice in one week, we've had vaccine injury and bereavement in the news. So this is brilliant. Um, as far as... Um, I think it was Elliot Colburn at the start of the debate coming on and slurring um, us all as anti-vax. Sticks and stones. <laughs> Sticks and stones, whatever he wants to say. You know, it just came across as very childish. So Christopher Chope presented um, quite calmly what he thought was his side of the debate and he was shouted down and told that people like him and his supporters have been harassing his 18 year old female secretary or assistant or whatever he said um so it was very childish so i think we you know the mps that were actually working for us in that debate came across as very measured and with great arguments whereas the people that were arguing against on the other side actually just came out like, as you say, Debbie, an advert for the MHRA. Um, so, yeah, I wasn't too upset by it because I could see it for what it was. I think it's a very commendable approach that you can you can see through the, uh, um, what is it, the theatre, I think, that occurs in some of these, these events. Um, I'd like to just put this image up. It was Debbie who, who alerted me to this this morning. It's a Sky News report saying COVID-19 inquiry focusing solely on the safety of vaccines will not be opened, the government says. Now, I don't know whether you were aware of, uh, of this headline, but can I just throw that back to the three of you? Start with you, Charlotte. 
were you aware that this had been declared and, and what is your feeling about it? Well, they, they did say in the debate that um, they wouldn't be prepared to open a separate inquiry on the safeties, uh, safety of the vaccine. And one of the excuses for that was that we were being included in the COVID-19 public inquiry, which focuses on the whole pandemic. Um, and we did actually, we have um, a solicitor that represents us and back in March, April time, our solicitor also, as well as alongside Sir Christopher Chope and VIB UK, we actually asked for a change in the terms of reference and we got it. However, we're not being included in module one. Um, I don't know if we're gonna be included in module two yet. Uh, there is one module they cannot um, exclude us from and that is the one to do with vaccines and therapeutics. So um, if we're not included in that, then there will be an uproar. But we're included in very little of this public inquiry so far. So um, the excuse that they're coming up with for not having a separate inquiry doesn't wash in my opinion. Well, I find it very confusing because if you're wanting to promote something as safe and effective, if over 100,000 people in the UK are saying we want an inquiry into whether it is because there's a lot of injured people, do it because actually it proves if you're confident that if it's safe have an inquiry into its safety and shut me up that's how i feel about it prove a point prove it there's people who are worried and they're legitimately worried this isn't you know this isn't a, something that people are just making up this is a, a significant group of people saying we are very very concerned so it makes complete sense then to do an inquiry to say, yeah, we've done it, you're wrong. And I would be the first to put my hands up if someone did an independent inquiry and I was wrong, I would go, okay, because mistakes happen, as I say. So I find it very confusing why they wouldn't go down that route. Because if they're worried about uptake, as they say, if they did an independent inquiry and it turned out to be the most safest thing ever, I'm pretty sure some of the hesitant people might actually change their mind. But you know that's the bit that makes no sense to me if it if you're worried uh, you know the only reason you wouldn't do it is actually if you're thinking it isn't safe yeah i completely agree with everything that christian said and um yes yesterday caroline johnson did announce that um there wouldn't be a separate covid vaccine inquiry but um she was sort of navigating people towards the baroness hallett inquiry the covid19 inquiry however she made it quite plain that anybody's stories that were submitted to the inquiry wouldn't actually be um, taken into account within the inquiry. They would be routed off to a listening group. So even within the main uh, COVID-19 inquiry, getting people's individual stories and experiences out is incredibly, incredibly difficult. Um, and I think what Christian said was absolutely right. We've been saying we need to eliminate the vaccine as a cause, you know, and if you don't have an investigation, you have to assume that the vaccine could have attributed to those serious adverse reactions. So unless they eliminate it, they'll never know. And why would they worry about an investigation if there was nothing to worry about? Because you know, truth doesn't need scrutiny. So let's have the investigation. Let's eliminate uh, the vaccine from these terrible, terrible illnesses that people 
are suffering. Um, if they've nothing to hide, then let's do it. But I suspect that there is much more to come out. And this is exactly the reason why they don't want an investigation, which is exactly the reason that we have to keep on um, pursuing it uh, until we do get one. Charlotte, give us really the last words on on this. How would you sum up your situation, the situation of the other vaccine injured? And where, where would you like to see things go now? I, th I think we're still being marginalised. I think we need we do need more support. We need more people to write to their MPs. So we need a solid base of MPs. We've got 60 odd, but we need more. We need more support. So if you can, please do write to your MP. Um, you can you can actually email us inquiries at ukcvfamily.org and we will provide a template if you'd like a template. Um, you know, check out our website. Check out our Twitter and social media because we do advertise when there's going to be these types of events. And just try and get people more involved in it. So, you know, ask your friends and family to do the same. Um, I think I, I'm staying positive because I know how much work Caroline and Brian have put into our campaign and I know how much work Viv UK have put into theirs. And I know that between the two groups, um, we have a, we do have a lot of support. We just need we need to be taken a little bit more seriously. We're injured and we're bereaved, but we still are strong and we have a voice. And as I said, we've got some clever clever people in our group from all walks of life. And um, we need we need time to to sit down and discuss this with our MPs like we thought we were going to last week. You can see how serious our document is and how well thought through it is. And this this is exactly the sort of thing we need time to sit down and talk about. You haven't asked me to do this, but I'm going to do it because I know that whenever people are trying to campaign and to uh, turn around the very big and lumbering establishment, it takes time, it takes effort, but it also takes money. and. Um, you have got a GoFundMe page, which is up, and I'm delighted to put that in front of the viewers for UK Column and say nothing can happen in this uh, field without uh, some financial funding to uh, allow things to be done. So we'll make sure that uh, viewers know where to go to that GoFunding page as well. And uh, what can I say? It's, it's a very... It's an emotional topic. You, you are very calm. You're very measured in the way that you put things across. But at the end of the day, we're talking about the lives of a great many people um, that in some cases have been utterly destroyed as a result of a vaccine programme that the government encouraged us all to get involved with. And I think the minimum that the government can do, the MPs can do, is actually listen to people who are actually suffering as a result so that we can get the real truth, which is what Debbie was indicating. But it's, uh, it's, been, it's been an emotional ride being with you this morning and, and hearing what's happening. So I'm gonna say thank you on behalf of myself and the UK Column team. And um, we would very much like to follow on this subject with you because there's so much more to discuss. 
uh, if you're happy to do that with us. Thank you. We'd love to come back, Brian, and, and talk a bit more about what we're getting up to and, and ways forward. Okay. Thank, thank you very much indeed. And thank you also to uh, Christian. Uh, thank you for giving your time once again and to give us your professional opinion on what's happening. And also a big thank you to uh, Debbie Evans for uh, really facilitating this happening today. Thank you all very much.